Oh, good. We are live. Okay. Lovely to see everybody this morning. Nice to see everybody here at King's Arms again. Uh, I was here about six, seven months ago um, and had an amazing, amazing time. Absolutely loved my journey here, and basically I just begged Simon a whole bunch, when can I come back, when can I come back, when can I come back, you know? So, <laughs> um, it was really a wonderful, wonderful weekend. This last, uh, this last week really has been an incredible week, uh, engaging in various parts of your, your town with other churches, uh, and then the Father Hawk Conference over the last couple of days have been absolutely incredible experience. Uh, I have to be honest, I haven't, I haven't had uh, yesterday afternoon session, the worship session there, I haven't had worship, experience worship like that in, in years. I mean, there was just something electric in the atmosphere uh, yesterday, and I'm incredibly excited in the, in the days and weeks ahead to hear about the stories that come out of the Father Heart Conference. <clears throat> this morning, I want to share something which is quite close to my heart in regards to, to life. Um, about, oh, sheesh, how long was it going now? Probably, let's see... Probably about 50 years ago, right? No, no, it's going to be longer than that. Probably 55 or so years ago, uh, older than I am. Um, but 55 years ago or so, there was a little girl uh, that was born in the northern part of the U.S. <clears throat> she was born in Connecticut, uh, just north of New York there. And she was born uh, into a situation where the mother really didn't want her. And at the time, the system didn't necessarily allow for the father to actually have her, because the father did want her, but the system wouldn't allow for that. So she was put into a foster care system. From the age of about two or three, uh, she grew up in foster care until she was 18 years of age. Um, she bounced from home to home to home, uh, never really understanding what it was to be loved, to experience love, to know uh, just a safe atmosphere and safe environment. As you can imagine, the things that took place to this beautiful little girl over the course of that 15 years or so. Some of the abuses that took place that sadly happened to many foster children around the world. The verbal abuse that happened at times. The physical abuse that happens in times. The sexual abuse that happened at times. This little girl eventually got to a home when she was about 12 years of age and with all the mental and the physical and the sexual abuse that had taken place up to that point, she arrived in this home, quite a broken little girl. Society wasn't aware of the things as we are aware of today. She arrived in this home And in the words of this little girl, she described this home as just love. Love that, that she had experienced like she'd never experienced before. This little girl, when I spoke to her, kept saying over and over again, there was no other way to describe this home except for love. They just loved me. They loved me every day. This couple took this little girl to the local church they happened to go to. I think it was an Episcopal church at the time. And one night, this little girl came home from church on a Sunday evening. And this little girl laid down in her bed. And with tears running down her face, she looked towards heaven and said, Jesus, if you're real, 
And if this love that I have in this home is what you give, then I need you. I need you. And no matter where I go from this place forward, as long as you're with me and I have this love that I'm experiencing right now, I'll be okay. And that night, that little girl met Jesus. About three months later, that little girl was moved by the system yet again to another home. And so the cycle of abuse continued. over her life until she was about 17 years old she met this man this man was about 23 she was 17 they fell passionately in love he was a southern guy not from the north that was a bit taboo okay you don't have northern girls falling in love with southern guys okay and first of all usually southern guys don't like northern girls in the US <laughs> But they fell madly in love. But the system at the time wouldn't allow them to get married because she wasn't an adult yet. So this man had to go and sign to become her guardian in order to marry her. And that's what he did. He effectively adopted her to marry her. <laughs> and this couple got married. And they moved to the south. And as a few years later, they adopted me. That mother was my mom. It was a story of my mom's life. And sadly, most of you in this room, none of you in this room ever met my mom. My mom passed away about three years ago in her home in South Africa. She had come there to live with us, retire with us in South Africa. Literally, my mom died in my arms. And that moment she died, that night, she's recovering from a triple bypass surgery and uh, embolism, a clot hit her lung at her home, recovering. And it was just minutes. And I had the privilege of ushering my mom from this world to the next. And when my mom died that night, I wrestled inside the entire night. I didn't sleep, I couldn't sleep. My wife's parents, the grandparents came and picked up the boys in their sleep because she was in her house. And I waited that night for the ambulance came and they couldn't take her. They had to have somebody from the a hospital to come and there was a big thing that had to wait before they could take her from the house because she had already passed. And I remember the entire night wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. Saying, why God, why? Why now, why her? I didn't understand. I, I ached inside, I ached inside. I remember standing on our veranda of our house and we kind of had this bit of an overlook over some hills. And it was probably about 5.30, quarter to six in the morning. The sun began to rise. And we had worship music playing. And as that sun began to rise and worship music playing, it was like God dropped something of what my mom had learned her entire life. Because if you knew my mom, she loved unlike anybody else that I knew she loved. She loved whether you're black, white, pink, or purple. She didn't care. Whether you're male or female, she didn't care. Stranger or person she knew, it didn't care. 
My mom was known for picking up babies in the shopping markets randomly, just going, oh, hello, and picking up this child and walking around loving them. Mom, you can't do that. They think you're stealing them, you know? <laughs> My mom didn't understand hate. She, she had no concept, no framework for hate. It, it blew her mind. How could people hate so much to even kill each other? She didn't understand that. Love poured out from her. She lavished everybody with love. If she became your friend, literally every year, no matter where you lived in the world, you would get a handwritten card from her on your birthday. Daily she would be writing cards, daily. As part of a routine in the morning, she'd get up, look through her journal whose birthday it was, and the next week, and she'd begin writing cards. Handwritten cards for years. People got handwritten cards from her. Even when an email started and I showed her how to work the computer and she loved the computer, she loved emailing people. And she still would send a physical card, but then she said, I like this thing of digital cards to e-cards, I like that. So you get an e-card and a handwritten card from her. <laughs> she lavishly loved. She was incredibly generous with her life and everything she had. And I credit her with teaching me something of generosity. Because when she passed, I literally felt like something was handed from her down to me in my life. Now, you're not gonna get a handwritten card from me, okay? I just gotta draw the line somewhere. Man, you're hoping, weren't you? But she taught me something of living my life for others. She taught me, because as an example, we lived most of our life below the poverty line or just above it, barely. There were times we didn't have food in our table, and thank goodness we lived near the ocean, and my dad was a fisherman. We'd have to go catch our food, literally. So when we were, we were dirt poor, we were broke, we had nothing, we ate seafood. <laughs> That's the favor of God right there, I'm telling you. <laughs> when you're broke and you eat seafood, God's shining on you. <laughs> That's how I grew up. Grew up every weekend going fishing with dad to make sure we always had some fish, some prawns, some crabs in the freezer to eat. And at least a couple times a week, that's what we'd be eating because there were no groceries in the house. I learned something of the lavish generosity of my father in heaven because my mom, with all the pain and suffering she went through as a child, she had every right, every excuse to grow up mad, to grow up angry, to grow up broken emotionally. She had every excuse to do that. But she made a choice not to do that. She made a choice to do exactly the exactly opposite what the world had given her. The world had given her pain and suffering and she made a choice by the power of heaven, by being imbued with the power of Christ inside of her, she made a choice to love lavishly into the pain. Live her life generously. There's this wonderful passage in Genesis. I'm becoming a great a great lover of Genesis, particularly the first two chapters, three chapters. Incredible things. I mean, just immense amount of wealth in Genesis. In Genesis 15, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, from the day that you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the field, to, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, Oh boy. <laughs> That's essentially what it says here, okay? <laughs> This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is a good looking thing. Something magical happens in the garden. God had created the space of the garden. And in it he placed man and he placed woman. And he gave the mandate upon the man to tend and keep the garden. And then further, the second mandate upon man was not only to tend and keep the garden, but the second mandate upon man was to create in the garden, to make something of it. Effectively, tending and keeping is to make something of the garden, correct? Because the garden is not wilderness, right? I mean, you go in the Africa into the bush, it's bush. There's nothing tend or kept about it, right? It's rough. Weeds and briars and vines and thorns. And, I mean, even the trees in Africa have thorns, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's rough. But God didn't say, I put you into the wilderness. He said, I put you into a garden. A garden speaks of something already made, already created. There's a sense of culture already about it. There's a sense of order and structure already placed into it. But it's not a city. It's not made with the hands of man. It's not a structured city. It's a garden. There's something, about, there's something beautiful about just being in nature, isn't it? And especially in a well-kept, tended garden, a garden that's been just manicured and, and so that just beautiful. It's just the way the flowers bloom and the way the grass is under your feet. Yeah, we walk barefooted in, in South Africa, sorry. <laughs> you know? There's something beautiful and restful and peaceful about that. And God had placed man, he placed Adam and Eve into the garden to tend to keep it. And he tells Adam this, he goes, I'm going to bring all the animals which I've created I've used my capacity as God to breathe life and to create these extraordinary creatures. But now I want you to use the capacity which I've placed inside of you to go and give all the names to these incredible creatures I've created. Think about the incredible privilege of that. To name, name connotates identity, character. He said, Adam, I give you that privilege. Mankind, I give you that privilege to go into my garden and to continue to create in the space that I've given to you. To give into that space lavishly and generously. Adam, your life is meant to be about giving it away, to tend and keep, to maintain and to create in this garden I've given you. That is the purpose of your life, to give yourself away into the garden, into the safe space which I've made for you. And then we read... Chapter 3, the serpent, the enemy, comes along. And the enemy does not come and confront Eve with a lie. He asks her a question. Because questions are the point at which all thinking starts. It is the, only way you, the only reason you think about anything because you are first internally in your mind asks yourself a question. And in, and in terms of trying to answer the question, you begin seeking and begin thinking and processing, looking for answers to the question which you ask yourself. And many of us, being birthed into the kingdom, yet we still carry the question of the enemy in our hearts. 
And that question sadly breeds lies upon us daily, over and over and over. We have something in Kingdom Intervention that we work with called the Genesis Question. It's a day-long process we go through with people to unpack what is the real Genesis Question. The question that the enemy sowed into your life to keep you from giving lavishly towards others. Because fundamentally, that question turned all of humanity. That question which the enemy asked Eve shifted us from giving into a space that God had created for us, a safe space, a lovely space, a garden, a full of culture and environment to go and create something magnificent in, to give our life away into that space. The enemy had asked a question of Eve which turned and shifted. And she moved from a place of giving into, Adam and Eve moved from a place of giving into a safe space that God had given to them. And what happened? Began to believe the, or to think along the lines that the question the enemy had asked, did God really say? Hmm, I, well, I don't know, did, did God really say? And certainly, surely in the conversation between Eve and the enemy, lies began to be, be created. And those lies took hold in Eve's heart and those lies took hold in Adam's heart. And it shifted from being a place where Adam and Eve were to give into a garden, they went back to the garden and they consumed the thing they weren't supposed to consume. Why did they consume the thing they weren't supposed to consume? So they could consume more of what they thought of something they didn't have already. Because they were made in the image of the Father already. Yet the enemy, through his questioning process, tricked them to believe the lies that they weren't quite enough. They weren't quite as good as they thought they were. Even though the Father, the King of heaven, the King of all creation, the Creator himself, looked upon Adam and Eve and said, you are not just good, you are very good. But they entertained the question of the enemy. They believed somehow they're not quite enough. They're not quite good enough. The number one question of humanity, are you really enough? You ask it almost every day of yourself in various ways and various forms, am I really good enough? Am I really okay? Can they really love me that much? Can my spouse really care for me that much? No, certainly they can't. Am I really good enough to be in that person's space? Am I really good enough for this job? Wonder what my dad expects of me. What does my mom expect of me? What does my teacher expect of me? What does my employer expect of me? What do the staff here at the church expect of me? Always trying to be a bit more, trying to work a bit harder, striving to be a bit more than we already are. Because the enemy has sown a lie in, in various forms and various ways and various types of questions, but the fundamental basic truth is the same. Am I enough? And that simple question of am I enough turns us from creators into the garden, turns us into consumers of knowledge and information and stuff and things, anything to make us feel better. It shifts us from a people who are supposed to live lavishly and generously in our lives to a people who consume ravishly. Our world is on a pace to consume itself. There's not enough minerals. There's not enough, enough minerals, the, 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 the special minerals to go to make up these wonderful little gadgets, which most every single person in this room has. Probably multiples in our home. And I love it. I love these things. I love techno stuff. But there's not enough minerals in the world to create these for everybody. 
We're consuming the trade, these minerals that make these things, we're consuming them at a high rate. We are burning up the fossil fuels in our world at a rate quicker than they're being replenished. We are burning up the water supply in our world quicker than we can go back and filter the process all over again so we can use it again. Those are the physical things. But we consume each other emotionally every day. Do whatever I gotta do to get ahead, I'll just push you down a bit. Well, you know, uh, you know Simon, you know, he's not quite all that. You know, I mean, he's a good leader, but really, he's got some flaws. You know, he's, he's not, you know, not quite that good of a guy. I mean, really, come on, you know? His name's Simon. <laughs> but that's what leaders do. We do it gracefully because we want to honor Because Simon, Simon's a wonderful guy. So what do you think about Simon? No, Simon's a great guy. He really is an amazing guy. Incredible guy. I mean, he's incredible, you know? There's just this one thing. Just the one thing. Just only one. Why do we do that? Because I'm not quite enough and it makes me feel better. Just push you down a bit more. I consume off of you. I take the favor God has given you and I want to pull it down so I can get a bit higher. Are we living lavishly generous lives? Not just with our finances, but with our emotions, with our very life, the core of our being. Are we pouring, as Paul says, are we giving, pouring ourselves out daily as a drink offering, pouring ourselves out on the ground for others to take hold of? Are we loving lavishly and generously? Or are we, like Eve, Adam and Eve, stuck in the garden, still consuming, consuming, consuming in the very space God has given us to go and create? Most of you live in this city of Bedford or in the surrounding areas. My question is to you, King's Arms Church, are you consuming this city daily or are you giving into it daily? When you come into the shops to buy some bread and milk, are you going there just to buy, to consume, or are you going to give in more than you get? What would happen if a church in this city what would happen if we got crazy enough, radical enough, to believe that we're going to give more than we take? So if I go in to, spend to, to, to a, a restaurant and I'm gonna buy dinner, I'm gonna buy dinner for myself and somebody else. What would happen if you go into the grocery store to buy groceries and I go into the grocery store to say, I'm gonna buy groceries for myself and I'm gonna buy somebody else's groceries? What would it be like for you to be standing in line at the grocery store at the till and you're waiting there with your cart, your trolley or whatever and you got your stuff in there and there's a, a, there's, a, there's a little granny or there's somebody in front of you, a single mom with three kids in front of you. Kids are going crazy. And rather than standing there and going, shame, what's going on with that mom's life? Come on, doesn't she know she needs to settle down? Oh my gosh, look at her life. How could she let her kids be that way? Rather than doing that, which is consuming, feeding off of her and make yourself feel better about how self-righteous and good you are, <laughs> Take that one out, throw it down there, okay. Wouldn't it be better to say, hey, my dear, you know what? I don't know who you are, but my father and your father loves you. I'm going to buy your groceries. What would happen if you did that? What would, what would happen in that grocery store in that moment? 
What will the person behind the till, what would she be thinking? Or he be thinking? Are you for real? It doesn't take a whole lot. It doesn't take much to, it doesn't take much to live generously and lavishly. It's little things. That's why I love this thing. It was acts of courage. Come on, let's lavish our city with acts of courage. Just yesterday, I, I, I preached around this thing of, 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 um, of giving, of, of generosity, particularly in the area of finance, though. And, and, some, and then um, at the end of the message, somebody came to me and literally handed me some money. That wasn't the point I preached it, but it was nice. I appreciate that. <laughs> somebody came and handed me some money. I didn't even look at what it was. I just stuck it in my pocket. Thank you very much. We went out to eat afterwards at Nando's. And uh, I literally took this money out. I don't know how it was. I just, I just saw 20 pounds notes. I didn't know one, two, five, ten. I don't know what it was, okay? I have no clue at this point on how much it was. I never looked at it. I just saw 20 and a couple of them there. It seemed to be a couple of them. And I took it out of my pocket. And after I was going to leave, I was, I was, I got to do something. I got to do something. We got to give. We got to give. I just preached this thing about living generously and lavishly. We got to give. We got to give. So I took that money, which has just been giving to me. And our waitress, her name was Maria. <laughs> I like that, okay? <laughs> and, and I went up to her and I said, sorry, Maria, I said, I, said, uh, I just want to tell you, I just want to give this to you and I want to tell you your father sees your need and he's waiting for you to meet it. Waiting for him. He's waiting to meet it for you and he loves you. And I put this in her hand. She didn't even look at how much it was. She took the money in her hand and teared up straight away. Because it wasn't even about the money. The fact that somebody notices me. Somebody sees me. I'm not just a person giving your food like a slave. I'm not just the person behind the counter take, pushing some buttons and taking your money like a slave, a robot that nobody sees. I'm a person and somebody noticed me and more than somebody, a father in heaven, something out there, something greater than me notices me and notices to me that I'm here. That's what it means to tend and create and live lavishly and generously in the garden versus taking, consuming because we believe the question of the enemy. Interesting, we're going to wrap this up quickly, but interesting, I want to show you one little principle in this context to help you know where to give, okay? There's a little tool we use to help you know where to give because what you see from Genesis chapter 3 right through chapter 11 is once man blows it, once mankind blows it and becomes consumers, and then they start trying to get on top, push everybody else down constantly. From that point forward, we see a series of events happen. The very first event we see happening is, is Cain and Abel, okay? And Cain killed his brother Abel. Why? Because he felt like he wasn't enough, so he killed his brother Abel. But in God's grace and his lavish goodness, God didn't kill Cain. He marked him on his forehead so nobody would ever touch him. And then we fast forward to the next section. Society became chaotic and, and just it was random and craziness happening. And Noah rose up in that space and God spoke to Noah and he built an ark. We know the story. The craziness and chaos of society. God said, here, build an ark. Bring some peace. Bring something inside to protect humankind. And he put Noah and his family into the ark. We know the story. 40 days and 40 nights. Humanity was destroyed and rebirthed again. But still the lie continued on. Still the lie which was sown by the enemy of we're quite, not quite enough. We will abuse and abuse, physically abuse and emotionally abuse and spiritually abuse those around us. What God was trying to push out, it was still sitting there in the heart of mankind. And so we fast forward from Noah all the way to chapter 11, chapter 12 of the Tower of Babel. 
When finally, at last, mankind acknowledged exactly what it was. And if you look in chapter 11, it literally says, mankind says, we will make a name for ourselves. We will build a city and a tower all the way up to God, basically to show God who we are. That we are so destitute, we are so desperate for attention, we are so, so, so become so much consumers of our own selves and each other, that when now we will literally consume God ourselves. We will make ourselves greater than God. How much the lie had ravaged humanity. Of course, God said, let us come down and confuse their language because man, surely when man puts his mind to something collectively like this, he can do anything. Why? Because I created them with that capacity. I've given them the creative ability from the garden from the beginning to go and take what I've given them and create. But they're bringing destruction because it's all about them and they're consuming the very things they're creating. And then we see, by God's abundant, lavish, generous love. Right after chapter 11, you look into chapter 12, and you see this incredible lineage. At the end of that lineage, this man named Abram. In the next chapter, God says to Abram, who is soon to be Abraham, that I will make you known among the nations. Again, in his lavish generosity, God says, I know what you're craving. I know you want to have impact because I've placed this thing in your heart to have impact in the world, to go and create beautiful things in the world, to take what I've given you and make it a wonderful place. And so therefore, I'm putting that seed inside of you again, humanity, and I will make your name great among the nations of the world. And we know Abraham being the father of faith eventually leads to Jesus who redeemed humanity, who gives us now the power as we sit here as believers to shift and to understand that we can, we, we can shift from being consumers to givers, to creators. But in that pattern you see over and over again, it's something we call, or I call the crazy eight. <laughs> you see it happening over and over in this crazy eight pattern. You see this, this, this what we call an empowered place and a disempowered place. You see this pendulum swing back and forth. You see it there in the scripture. Man becomes empowered, we're gonna do great things, we're gonna consume ourselves, and through consuming we create cities and we create stuff and things and, and we consume each other emotionally, but it makes us feel strong. I mean really, when you buy the new iPhone 6, it makes you feel better, doesn't it? <laughs> when you buy that new laptop or that new computer or that right clothes with the right brand on it, there's something inside of you that makes you feel a little better, doesn't it? a little more significant than somebody else. We feel empowered by that. But then surely that empowerment wears off and we come to a disempowered place because then we realize once you wash that shirt a couple times and it gets a bit faded and a bit ready and think, oh, that doesn't look so nice and fresh anymore. I don't feel so great anymore. Or the first time you drop your iPhone and it hits the floor and it gets a scratch on it or cracks the screen, you go, mm, now you're the genius with a cracked iPhone screen walking around with a cracked screen all day long, right? <laughs> you don't feel so empowered anymore, do you? And the same thing happened in, in those chapters of Genesis. You see man trying to empower himself. I will kill my brother to make me feel better. And then straight away he's disempowered and walks in pain for the rest of his life. And then you see Noah, mankind consuming itself upon humanity. The, the warlords of society, the destructionists of society taking charge literally to the point where they were killing children and, and, and I mean just horrendous things happening in society to make themselves better and powerful and in charge. And then suddenly destruction comes again. 
And the same thing at the Tower of Babel. We will build a tower for ourselves. We will make a name for ourselves. And destruction comes again. The same thing plays out in our lives emotionally. Emotionally. And this is something that I don't want to make fun of, I don't make light of, because I know it happens a lot in our society, but it's a reality. And every one of us have touched on this place. We neither know somebody has been in this space or we ourselves have been there. And that is the thing of depression. We feel depressed, we're sad, we're lonely. My life is painful. I don't have any dreams, I don't have any hope. But the reality is we can't stay there long. We can't stay in that sad place long. And so usually depression bursts out to a place of, but I'm ticked off about being sad all the time. I'm mad about being sad. I gotta do something with my life. Let's change my life, let's go do something. I'm sad that, I'm, I'm mad that they've done this to me, that society's done this. I'm mad that my, my dad did that to me. I'm mad my mom did that to me. I'm mad my, my husband or my wife did that to me. I'm mad my child, how dare my children do that to me? How dare my employer? I'm ticked off about that, I'm mad. I'm mad and I'm just so mad that it makes me feel sad. And I'm sad again, and oh, my life sucks, and I, my life's terrible, and I hate my life, but I'm mad. I'm mad at the people that do this to you. I'm mad at the way we make me feel this way. Can you see the pattern? The same crazy ache playing out in our lives over and over and over again. At the end of the day, there's only one way to stop that process from happening it's growth. Growth. It's time to grow as people. It's time to grow spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Because when you grow, study the pattern, the chaos of destruction and peace and empowerment and disempowerment. Empowerment, disempowerment stops. How do you grow? Give into the pain. Love lavishly. Give into the pain of the city. The most desperate parts of the city, that is where you to give into. Give into the pain daily. Love, love lavishly. That's not, I'm not saying we shouldn't have healthy boundaries in life to protect ourselves from, from those who are abusing. Absolutely, and we need boundaries. We have to have those things in place. But we are to love lavishly. We are to love ourselves lavishly because God said you are very good. And therefore you are to love yourselves lavishly as well as well as loving others. So my question to you is, what are you going to do today? Not tomorrow, not this week. What are you gonna to do today to love lavishly somebody around you? Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's a child, maybe it's someone in the city. What are you going to do to love lavishly, to shift from being consumers of a society to givers and creators into society? To start businesses which not a consuming society, businesses which consume the things of society, but businesses which go out and create and solve the problems of our society. That's kingdom business. That's what every one of us should be about. What are you gonna do to do that? Will you live your life loving lavishly or will you become like Cain, like the children of destruction, or like the city of Babel, trying to build an empire for yourself. Let's stand, please. Oopsie. I want to encourage you to love lavishly today. Not tomorrow, not this week, today.
when you walk out of this building, love lavishly. Before you leave this room, before you leave this auditorium, before you leave this building, find somebody to love lavishly. Sometimes it's just a hug. Sometimes it's just an encouraging word. Sometimes it's just a big smile. Sometimes it's simply, well done. Husbands, look at your wives and see something in them that you've never seen before. Find something about them that you've never seen before and and tell them what you see on them. Tell them that thing you've never noticed before and how beautiful they are, that thing. Wives, find something you love about your husband, something they do well, and love them lavishly. Tell them, don't just think it, tell them what they do well in your home. Whatever you do, love lavishly. Love generously. And let us not be deceived by the question of the enemy, are you enough? Because you are more than enough. Because your Father says you are very good. Let us be creators of culture versus consumers of the culture. Father, I want to thank you for the people in this room today. I want to thank you that there are people in here today, first of all, that need some lavish love. I trust right now where they stand that you would pour your lavish, generous love upon them, O God. Pour lavishly upon them, Jesus, right now. Not simply for their benefit, but so they can love lavishly and they can enjoy the fruits of loving lavishly because there's nothing else in this world except there's nothing else in this world like loving lavishly. It's like the more we give of your love, the more you give it to us. May we establish a legacy of love in this house. A legacy which love this city, which transform this city through love, which transform this nation, starts a movement in this nation to transform this nation through just loving generously and lavishly with all that we have, with our finances, with our homes, with our houses, with our cars, with our clothes, with with our family lives, with our food, with our time, with our emotion, with our energy. We just give it away lavishly. Thank you, Father, for your generous love. Thank you, Father, for your lavish grace. In Jesus' name.